The following is rated not safe for work. It contains strong language, adult situations, and lots and lots of spoilers. Discretion is advised. In the criminal justice system, cinematic-based offenses are considered especially heinous. The dedicated attorneys who investigate these villainous films are members of an elite squad known as the Reels of Justice. These are their stories. Order, please order. The Reels of Justice is now in session. Judge Jill and Jay Slender presiding. Your eyes for the Honorable Judge Slender. Be seated. Welcome to the Reels of Justice. Today we are hearing the case of The People vs. Joker, a 2019 dramatic thriller that reveals the origins of comics' most notorious villain, exploring his turn from failed stand-up and clown to a menace to society. For those of you unfamiliar with our court proceedings, we are here to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. As always in this courtroom, films are to be considered excellent until proven awful, and the burden of proof lies upon the prosecution to prove beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt that this film is guilty. Dr. James Charney, you are representing the prosecution. You may present your opening statement. Thank you, Judge Lender. Uh, this film is a missed opportunity. They had a blank canvas for the origin story of the Joker, and the most original thing they came up with is a negative. There's no vat of chemicals and no rictus smile. Oh, and he has a new name. Arthur Fleck is already a clown, a party clown. How did that happen? We aren't going to know. The film opens with the first of many cliches. The sad clown trying out sad and happy faces. We'll discover that he's a sad sack with a grudge. He's not a Joker the way we know it at the beginning, and he isn't the Joker we know at the end either. In fact, the character Joker is supposed to be funny and smart and outrageous and unpredictable, isn't he? As well as a villain. There's none of that here. If it wasn't for Joaquin Phoenix's mesmerizing performance, I think this movie would be unwatchable. Granted, Phoenix is remarkable. He's in every scene of the movie, and he carries it with grace mm. and seriousness. Joker has the veneer of a well-made movie, but it is skin deep. The movie's relentlessly grim, moment after moment of awful. The music, which is effectively ominous, repeatedly underlines the one-note tone of the whole movie, a sense of threat and misery without let-up. This is not a good thing. Its mode is repetition. Different moments, same message. Doubling down on just how bad things are. It's a movie that has no sense of humor, no irony. There's literally one moment of humor I can point to, the midget and the door, and it's not even particularly funny. It hits you over the head again and again with just how bad it all is until the release of murder seems a reasonable choice. No, not the guys on the subway, who, as an added insult, really do dishonor to Stephen Sondheim sent in the clowns. I mean the screenwriter and the director for being so lazy and careless. Finally, for me as a psychiatrist, worst of all, the portrayal of mental illness is botched, and it's a major theme of the film. Joker piles one madness on top of another, and in doing so, they show us something that doesn't exist in the real world. Yes, I know this is a comic book villain, and the movie would have us believe in its reality. It tries to speak to the downtrodden and give them, in the character of Joker, someone like them who feels unseen or unrepresentative. He's a hero villain to cheer. With all its comic book limits, though, 
the movie had a chance to say something serious about mental illness and institutional failures to help, and it did it all wrong. Is Arthur a psychopath? Is he a psychotic? Is he just God's lonely man with anger issues? The movie would have it that he's all of these. And, and what's with the uncontrolled laughter? It's all an incoherent jumble. Showing Arthur to have an impossible madness is simply unacceptable to me, and it makes this film guilty of being awful. Thank you very much, James. Appearing on behalf of the defense is Mr. Maynard Bangs. Please present your opening statement. Your Honor, distinguished members of the court, 2019's Joker is an origin story of a character with no established origin story. As the character says himself in Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, sometimes I remember it one way, sometimes another. If I'm going to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. And loyal to that philosophy, this film has some multiple choices when it comes to its interpretation. Are we seeing events as they transpire through the eyes of the Joker, who calls himself Arthur Fleck in this film, witnessing Arthur's delusions along with him, like in 1995's Fight Club? Or are we seeing a recreation of events as told by an intentionally deceitful narrator, like in 1995's The Usual Suspects? Busy year for unreliable narrators. (laughs) And I think that comes down to your interpretation of the Joker himself. Do you take him at face value and accept that he's truly insane? Or do you believe that it's all a lie and act to help him achieve his criminal ends? Deep down, the Joker isn't crazy. He's simply evil and just wants you to think he's crazy. The duality of this character's nature, the uncertainty, is baked into this film itself. And it would be simple for me to sit here and wave away a lot of the events of this film by simply saying... Well, the Joker is a liar. Of course, he's going to spin you this sob story about being a poor, failed party clown named Arthur Fleck, whom nobody loved. Art Fleck. Art Flick. Very funny, Joker. It is an Art (laughs) Flick. This is the kind of story the Joker would use to try and rent some sympathy out of Dr. Harleen Quinzel, who we know is featured in the sequel. However, I'm going to self-impose a moratorium on this interpretation of the film. Because again, while it'd be easy for me to wave away most of the events in this film as a flimsy lie told by a notorious criminal, it won't make for a very sporting argument. Although if it satisfies you, feel free to mentally check the box next to not guilty now. However, (laughs) I will instead opt for the interpretation that the events we see on screen are as Arthur sees them. We're sharing his earnest and honest perception of them. And this film is an exploration, quote, an exploration of a man disregarded by society, a movie about childhood trauma, the lack of love in the world and the loss of empathy in society, end quote. It personally sounds like exactly the kind of touchy-feely bullshit the Joker would want us to believe. And I think we're playing exactly into his hands. But again, for the sake of argumentation, I'll go with door number two. Thank you. All right, easily the most robust opening statements we've had in a while. Uh, Dr. Charney, you may proceed with your first exhibit. Well, my first exhibit, first first of all, I uh, I did not know that the Joker was a movie maker. I had no idea that he was able to, to pull something like this off. Um, so I'm going to assume that this is a, uh, meant to be a genuine story of a genuine origin. And my first objection about it is it's a copy of better movies, particularly Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and his King of Comedy. In fact, Taxi Driver is directly referenced repeatedly. These movies, especially Taxi Driver, counter the grim look of the city, which this film 
um, uh, insists on, with lush music, gorgeous cinematography, interesting secondary characters, and a protagonist who resists his worst impulses. Instead, this movie wallows in them. From King of Comedy, we have the idea of a little man, Rupert Pupkin, I love that name, a failed comedian <laughs> trying to get noticed. In that one, he kidnaps the late TV, uh, late night TV host who's obsessed with and whose program he wants to be on. That's Jerry Lewis in the film. Uh, and in Taxi Driver, we have Travis Bickle and the mime shooting in the head, which is re referenced several times in this film. First, when Arthur meets the neighborhood girl, Sophie, who, interestingly, I had to watch the movie several times to convince myself, no time in the movie does anyone call her name. You only know her name by reading the credits. Um, Objection, Your Honor. How would Arthur know her name? She would say, my name is Sophie. It never happened. They don't have a conversation. <laughs> Objection, Your Honor. They don't have a conversation. This is a woman that he, true. who lives in his building, he bumps into in the hallway, she accidentally makes a face of, and he begins to obsess with. The yeah. film is clear. They never have an interaction. That's why it's so important when she comes to the door later and says, mm -hmm. you're so funny, Arthur. She does not know this man. So she would not know his name when she came to the door and asked, are you following me to work? When they never meet. <laughs> they never meet. He doesn't uh, know her name. When was the last time you saw this movie? They meet many, Yesterday. many times, according they, to this movie. No, they yes. are all hallucinations. The, film, ah, the, the, only, right. the only real interactions they have, according to the film, again, if we believe that we're sharing Arthur's delusions, is uh, when they're in the elevator and she makes the gun face, and then later when he's in her uh, apartment and she goes, who are you? That's the reveal we get. Uh, that shows that we can no longer trust everything Arthur's been seeing this entire film. That's the scene that confirms it. The, 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 you're right. The reveal is when he go, uh, lets himself into the apartment and she is sh shocked to find him there, asking why he's there. And, um, and, and all of a sudden, the film shows us a handful of maybe four or five scenes that the film has shown us earlier mm -hmm. where she is with him. And all of a sudden right. we see that she's not with him in any Correct. one of those scenes. So, so the film is not playing fair with us by any wait, means. Wait, wait um, a minute, James. That's clearly to let you know that, as I told you earlier in my opening mm -hmm. statement, this is an unreliable narrator. Your rejection of this being an unreliable narrator and that everything is objective is false. We are not seeing what is really happening. We are seeing the events either, again, I can't say, either from a liar or from a crazy man who suffers from visual and auditory hallucinations. Or or we could take them as elaborate fantasies, maybe like 2000s American Psycho. But the thing is, they don't happen positively. The Zazie Beats character and subplot is meant to establish this. They never meet. They're, we see later that uh, all of them, when, in a lucid moment for Arthur, that all of them, besides their first and final interactions, were all figments of his imagination or his delusional brain. We also see earlier in the movie that vi uh, Arthur can vividly fantasize himself because he imagines himself as a guest at the Murray Franklin show, where he stands up and everyone starts to cheer him. That didn't happen. That's a fantasy. <laughs> you know, the, the film is meant for you to take that and understand that. What what the film? The, you're you're right and you're very wrong. Um, mm -hmm. you're, uh, when he's watching TV with his mom and we see him uh, imagining himself in the audience and imagining Murray to 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 be so and taken with him and talking about how uh, he he would give up everything to have a son like you. Um, mm -hmm. it, the film shows that that is a fantasy. It shows right. it, it it tells us at the moment. Right. 
that he's watching television, right. he's imagining something, Correct. and the camera goes back to him sitting with his mother, and we know it's all in his imagination. Correct. Everything, because the, that you, everything uh, and, excuse well, me. Let, everything, let, let him finish, Mayor. Let him finish. Okay. Everything that you're labeling as hallucination, I agree 100% is hallucination, but the film is playing games with us, and it's not Arthur doing that. It's the, the, the creators of the film are playing a game that I found obnoxious because they threw in the, that the man is psychotic, where up until then, there was no evidence that the man was psychotic. Arthur. At the beginning of the film, Arthur is more heavily medicated and actually seeing his social uh, service manager. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the film, Arthur's at his most lucid, he's at his least dangerous, and he's at his most relatable. I think we open this film and Arthur gets beat up by kids, we feel bad for Arthur. We find right. Arthur sad, he lives with his mother, we feel bad for Arthur. As the film goes on and Arthur's medication wears off and he stops getting help, normal people stop feeling bad for Arthur because normal people don't behave the way Arthur behaves throughout this movie. And so you're supposed to feel the most for him at the beginning. Now, you're upset that the movie just doesn't go between every single scene. It expects you, an intelligent viewer, an educated viewer, to understand if Arthur can fantasize here, who's to say he's not fantasizing this? Who's to say he's not fantasizing a relationship with Zazie Beetz? Who's to say he's not fantasizing about getting onto the Murray Franklin show as a failed stand-up comedian getting called on a guest and shooting Murray Franklin in the head? Who says he's not fantasizing about a movement starting up? Who's to say he's not fantasizing every element of this movie. I don't know why you would ever go to this movie. You could fantasize a whole because movie Because it's in your not house. about because <laughs> it's not about what happens, it's about the who, but we'll get okay. it. Okay. I think I think you're making an interesting point, but it's a point that makes no sense to me. Um and uh, hopefully um, it makes sense to the jury. Uh, I could understand that. Um uh my, you know, I I totally agree that at the end when they show the fact that he's been hallucinating this relationship to me, that is a leap into, into insisting on a diagnosis that has never been suggested before. There's nothing about this movie except that brief moment when he's watching TV with his mom where we ever get into his head and see the world as he sees it until an hour later into the movie, 20 minutes before the end, we are suddenly told this guy's been hallucinating a relationship for the last hour. Um, Objection, I, Your Honor. I, I just do want to say I believe the entire film is through this man's eyes, either okay. him recanting it in a story or literally through his first person eyes, as I did establish earlier. Okay, I think there and, are and as a the, few And ways. as the prosecution stated, there's no scene with Joaquin Phoenix not in it. He's in That's every true. scene. That's we, true. There's a reason for that. This whole movie's through his perspective. I, I think there's a credible argument on each side. We'll let James continue. <laughs> okay. Um, um, this kind of got me off tag. I'm here. Well, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the exhibits in order because my last one was going to be discussing the mental illness in, at length. And I, we could skip to that if you want to. Um, but um, because uh, what I'm struck with, I think I will skip to that. And the other ones I will raise. Basically, the uh, my other exhibits, which I will go to if you need more exhibits besides um, the mental illness objection, is um, is, is, is the, uh, the fact that this film is incredibly shallow in its presentation of the story um, and that, there, that we uh, repeatedly get uh, authors' messages thrown around with, um, with uh, 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 
explanations and, and, and statements from Arthur. Uh, you know, we, we've got the thing that is stolen from a taxi driver and stolen from Arthur Bremer, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the killer, um, about the journal um, that Arthur keeps. Um, and we, we often read what he says and talks about uh, his, uh, his, his comment about uh, the worst thing about being mentally ill is that people expect you not to behave that way. Um, I can tell you there are a lot worse things about me mentally ill than that. Um, but there, there are, are superficial kind of comments like that throughout the film that, um, that I find um, uh, semi-profound. I hope my death makes more sense than my life. Um, uh, but um, what I, I would guess, I'm, I'm, I think I would like to uh, just leap to the mental illness issue because um, Please, this, 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 uh, this, could this, I just make one yeah. one small rebuttal yes. to uh, the quality of the filmmaking? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a refreshing take on a superhero genre. This is a genre full of action movies, fantasy movies, sci-fi. Right. But this is a character-driven drama, especially of this caliber. Uh, the cast, Joaquin Phoenix, who we already mentioned, Robert fucking De Niro, who is not, nothing's being stolen. He is paying homage to his 1976 movie, Taxi Driver. They are paying homage to his 1982 film, King of Comedy. It's very well recognized and admitted. It yes. received 11 Oscar nominations, more than deserving, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, which Phoenix won, and also the more technical awards. It wasn't just political. They were nominated for Best Editing, Makeup, Cinematography. They won for Best Score. That one-note score, it won an Oscar. Every element of this film, the studio put energy and money and time into. They didn't cut corners. And it's beautiful to see that when they put prestige film energy into what should be a B-movie, they come up with prestige film results. Uh, if you took Joaquin Phoenix out of this movie, it would be unwatchable for, for me. Um, I think I think it is one note. Take I think on, it's miserable. Take Orson Welles out of Citizen Kane. It's unwatchable. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I don't know about that. I think Phoenix did an absolutely brilliant job. I think he brought a lot to the story that wasn't in the script, um, and uh, and 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 he, and he was. It, it, it was hard not to watch him. Um, other actors might have done a good job, but he did an extraordinary job. But I think the movie around him is nowhere near as good as his performance. Um, these uh, other- I would just, he, I just sidebutt objection. Heath Ledger and uh, Jack Nicholson have proved that the Joker is fertile ground for lots of character development. It- Yes, I agree, and uh, and uh, and I question the character development in this film. Um, uh, where are we now? Um, mental illness. Like mental, mental illness. illness. Okay, yeah. mental illness. Um, this is this is in my wheelhouse. Uh, All right. <laughs> so here we go. Um, he is. We we first see him uh, when he meets with his therapist. Not first see him, but the first time that this gets addressed directly. This whole question of uh, is he mental mentally ill and what that what is that about? Um, he's meeting with his therapist and um, and uh, he talks about how bad he's feeling. Uh, and we see a flash of um, when she asks him if he knows why he was in the hospital of him hitting his head against um, uh, the, the glass in a door in the hospital. Um, a b- very brief flash. This is kind of all we're going to be told about that early hospitalization. So the bottom line is we don't know what brought him into the hospital. Um, all he talks about is feeling bad. All he talks about is how awful things are, um, that he that people don't see him. He doesn't think his therapist sees him. He, he doesn't think anybody um, acknowledges him. Um, we don't know if we, we and we and he's asking for more medicine because he doesn't want to feel this bad. We don't know what bad means um, to him, but um, uh, so we're kind of left floundering as, as to a diagnosis. However, 
we are um, uh, at some point we are seeing that he's got an enormous problem with anger and with his temper, um, and and there are at least a half dozen times where he either um, you can see him trembling with anger but not doing anything, or you can see him expressing the anger um, after the fact, like the time when he's uh, 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 had has been fired and he's told that he's been fired and he hits his head. This seems like a routine thing for him. He hits his head several times um, uh, in anger uh, when he's in the telephone booth. He again uses uh, his ability, uh, I, I guess he's got a good bit of scar tissue there because he also hits his head against the grate um, in the in the hospital when he's trying to get the files. And that's how he manages to yank the uh, record away from the clerk and uh, and run away. But the bottom line is we see that the anger is just uh, under the surface um, and uh, and and it's extraordinary. And, and there and there is some rage there. Um, so we see somebody who feels bad and has problems with anger. We don't know what else is going on with him. So I wanted to mention, uh, briefly just run through the kind of diagnoses that would make sense for a character like this and see if he fits any of them. The first thing I would say, though, is that the two personality disorders that are most commonly associated with um, with Joker are, are antisocial personality and the psychopath, which are different. Um, but neither of them um, allows the uh, secondary diagnosis of psychosis. Um, and if he is psychotic, then we're dealing with a whole different ball of wax. Um, so uh, is he a psychopath? Well, the first most obvious thing is a psychopath shows a lack of could empathy. I, could I ask a question, though? If Please. he did show elements of psychosis, do mm -hmm. the events of this film make sense? No. No, it doesn't. Because again, he couldn't suffer you're... severe auditory and visual hallucinations under psychosis. Oh yes, that is psychosis. That's that. that right. That's part of the so definition. That is psych okay, so the events of this film, as I've described them, being a large auditory and visual hallucination, are supported by a diagnosis of psychosis. Uh, no, correct. no, that's... not correct. What's correct that that matches the diagnosis of psychosis is the thing that's thrown us at us at the end of the film when we are suddenly told. Um, and then no, there's no consequence to that, by the way. We're suddenly told that his relationship with this girl, um, which we have been shown as reality a half dozen times, doesn't exist. At that moment, we're told that at that moment, psychosis is introduced into the story. And just another question here from the defense. So yes. the Zazie Beats subplot, yes. which the film very clearly, very obviously paints as being a delusion or a hallucination is to you representative of psychosis. Yes. Yes. Or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. So following that, if not your interpretation of the film, but my interpretation of the film, that all of the events of this film are auditory and hallucination, just like the Zazie Beats plot, that would be in line with psychosis. Yes or no? That would be in line with psychosis. Thank you very much. But the film does not show that. Um, disagree and, and, with that, but thank you. And, uh, you, you. I can understand you disagree with that. To me, <laughs> to me, the fact is that the film is at least honest—not honest enough because it obviously wants to—it wants to throw psychosis into the mix. Um, it's basically my take on this is that we're we're seeing the the the, uh, the unveiling of somebody who's going to be labeled a psychopath, and oh by the way, he's psychotic. Um, and the oh by the way, psychotic is when the film reveals the the. Um, the fact that she's not there. 
are you going to try to tell me that when um, when there is the are the shots of her not being in the room that that is Arthur realizing that she's not there because that's not shown at all. He at no point does he realize that um, uh, that uh, that this relationship isn't real except for the moment which he says leave the apartment please and shows how she's terrified. So the film is showing so, uh, something. Uh, objection! The that's film. the moment when he has the flashbacks. He has the flashbacks at that moment when he's in the apartment. That's when he becomes lucid for a moment, realizes it's all in his head. And, well, we hope he leaves. He might hurt her, but we hope he leaves. He doesn't show us. He doesn't show us what he does to Sophie. That's true. If he does anything. And that's intentional. I wanted to follow up your point earlier that the mm -hmm. rage is beneath the surface. This supports my story that this is a first-person uh, representation of the events from Joker's perspective. That's why the rage is beneath the surface. Uh, there's a great moment, too, um, when he reads his mother's letter to Thomas Wayne, when he first mm -hmm. discovers that. Mm -hmm. We immediately smash cut to his mother, who we've seen can barely walk on her own, right. screaming and locked in the bathroom, saying, I'm not coming out until you calm down. Right. Joker intentionally does not tell us how angry he gets and what he does. He immediately cuts and only shows us the beginning, the end, because at that point, he still wants us to sympathize with him. No, that's not true. There's so many times we see how angry he is after he leaves. Because the Joker can't help but let it come to the surface. You're, you're, you're you can only control you, so much. You are having it two ways. One time he can, one time he can't. You Correct. There's not two ways. Sometimes I can bite my tongue and sometimes I can't. Sometimes <laughs> I know to go, I shouldn't say I'm mad right now. And sometimes I go, God damn it, I'm so, I was going to kill my mother, that fucking bit, you know? Sometimes you can control it. Have you ever talked to someone who's crazy? You must have. And you slowly once, realize once while twice. they talk, while they talk normally, you slowly realize in the middle of the conversation, oh shit, they're fucking crazy because they can't help but talk about how crazy they are casually. That's what this movie is like. Oh, I met this girl in an elevator. So I followed her to work the next day. You did fucking what? You did what? You Why did you follow her to work the next day? All sane people go, you did fucking what? You took your gun to the children's hospital? What's wrong with you? Right. What you're, what, And then he tries to backpedal. Oh, it was a prop. You know, we know it's not. Yes, we do. Anyway. We do know it's not. You are, you are tell, your take on this is that we're seeing this inside his head, and my take on it is I'm watching. I've been watching this from outside, and watching real behavior at all times. Um, that's why you don't like it, and that's why you don't get it. That's why I don't. Like that's it. what I'm here to that's prove. That's why it. I don't. That's why I don't get it. But that's why I don't like it <laughs> um, because I, I I think they they, they do uh, they do a, 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 a an un uh, an ineffective job of, of, of conveying the various things that may be going on under the surface with this guy. Um, uh, anyway, let me just finish with this brief diagnostic review. Um, you, you were, listen, you got a professor here. So uh, I, I get into professor uh, guys and it's very hard for me to get out of it. So. Um, yeah. Well, James, would, you mentioned that it was, yes. it would be conflicting, right? That if yes. he had psychosis. And so if you could get into like how that, maybe that conflict uh, yes. would work, that might put a nice button on oh, it for you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so it is, it, is he a psychopath? Um at, when when we when we see him finally near the end of the film, you know he's killed a handful of people and he's made very very clear that it doesn't bother him, that he thought it might bother him. He actually says to the clerk, but it doesn't bother him. Uh, at which point the clerk, um, who uh, uh, 
in many ways probably has been around enough uh, many enough psychiatric people that he actually um, has some empathy himself and shows it and says you should be talking to somebody uh, uh, he tries to re- refer him to someone and of course that raises up the issue of who do you talk to when when the institutional system seems to be um, uh, insensitive to the needs of someone who's mentally ill um, these, these kinds of things are pointed at in the most glancing way um, and, um, and and yet there's something that I think deserves further uh, explication and examination. But the bottom line is um, that he, uh, it's very clear that Arthur is not bothered by any of the the violence that he winds up uh, unleashing uh, as the film goes on. Um, uh, In fact, we see him in what seems like a moment of grace and a a moment of peace when we see him doing this kind of um, Tai Chi-like dancing after um, he... uh, uh, shoots and kills the uh, three guys in the subway. Um, they're, 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 that that I that was absolutely brilliant and interesting and unexpected, um, and uh, and uh, and yet that told us more than a lot of the dialogue ever told us. So we've got somebody who doesn't care about how he's affected other people. He, someone who's not bothered by his own violence. Um, he. Uh, we don't see him as manipulative at all, which is something that psychopaths are are are, are commonly um, uh, identified as as being very good at manipulating. The reason a psychopath is 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 able to con people is because they have no empathy. As a result, they don't feel other people's confusion, other people's uh, pain, other people's sadness, and it allows them to take take control of the situation much more easily. Um, Objection, a, unless the entire film is meant to be a manipulation of the audience, as I've hypothesized. I, I choose to ignore that. He has a lack of remorse <laughs> for any bad consequences, um, and he will blame others for any failures. This is a psychopath. Um, lack of remorse, Arthur has a lack of remorse. Lack of empathy, Arthur has a lack of empathy. Um, no conscience, as far as we can tell, he has no conscience. Rarely anxious. Interestingly, we don't see him anxious. We also don't see him profoundly depressed, but he often acts suicidal. The number of times that he um, uh, points the, the gun under his chin, and, and uh, again, in homage, I agree, homage is the better word than stealing, but boy, do they homage like crazy in this movie. They homage the shit that. But yes, he puts the gun under his chin and click, the gun does not go off. He does that several times, so there are suicidal thoughts there. He also does this very weird thing, and again, the film the, the the film in, 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 let me tell you what the weird thing is he takes all of the shelves out of the refrigerator and he he curls up and goes into the refrigerator which is still on and still cold and he closes the door behind him Next cut, he's lying in bed and the Murray uh, Franklin show calls up. We have no idea how long he was in the refrigerator. We don't have no longer how he got, got out because sometimes if you close <laughs> the refrigerator- We have no idea if he stopped to make a sandwich after. I need to know every detail of this man's life. I need to know what happens when someone behaves suicidally. What's next? How come? How, he much, did, how, how come, much? How come he didn't die? That's actually one of the questions as a psychiatrist I always ask. How many times have you tried it, and why didn't it work? And how do you feel about the fact that it didn't work? Because very often they're saying they're relieved, and a lot of times they say, "I'm really pissed off, and I'm going to try it again." So you really need to. Yes, I wanted to know what happened next. Um, well, and I, if he's again, if he's the one telling you. 
How much is he going to tell you? How much is he going to skip over? He's not the one telling me. The movie makers are telling yes. me. I'm seeing this as I'm seeing this as an omniscient uh, narrator, not Arthur's view of now, the world. Now, now, now. <laughs> okay, let's, let's. So anyway, is he a psychopath? He has a lot of psychopathic qualities, but he but he doesn't have the manipulative conning ability. Uh, he doesn't have the the, the social skills. Uh, also, this particular Arthur, this particular Joker, is not smart. There's nothing that shows that he is smart or cunning, and he certainly is not funny. Uh, and all of those are elemental parts of the Joker character in every movie I've ever seen and most of the comics. Um, so uh, this makes me wonder, who is this guy that they're calling Joker as compared to the, 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 archetypical, jo the archetypal Jokers we have seen before? Um, his lack of it, uh, I mean, his, he's not stupid, but he has, at best, uh, mid-level intelligence. Um, he, you know, it, it would be hard to imagine he's ever read a book. Um, so we've got that. Um, if, by the way, if he has a personality disorder, the, the other personality disorder that's in the same category is antisocial personality. Just let me mention that because I think is it's Is it narcissistic? No, antisocial. Narcissistic is different. Um, the antisocial personality, usually as a child, tortures animals. As a teen, breaks rules, um, has no respect for property, is, sets fires, um, usually is impulsive enough and 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 um, uh, unthoughtful enough that they get arrested. They're deceitful, but they're lousy liars, often reckless, driving too fast, getting drunk, abusing drugs. This is the antisocial personality. There's no charm there. There's no uh, there's no ability to con. Um, but Could I also, ask the characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder? Does he match those? No, he doesn't. Um, I, I I don't think so. Um, what are those characteristics? Basically, it's 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 somewhat. Are, are, what he's missing is any sense of of being special. Any sense of Arthur great. absolutely thinks he's special. He th he wants to be a stand-up comedian. Thinks he's meant to make the world laugh. He he thinks people overlook him because he thinks he deserves to be looked at. That's all delusional. Arthur, that's all delusional. Yes, no, that's what narcissistic personality. It's a delusion. Narcissists are delusional. So is Arthur. Uh, our, our narcissists are not delusional. They just they they just um, uh, think too damn much of themselves. Delusion isn't that is a delusion, huh? Isn't that a delusion, you, Your you, Honor? You can you can. Oh, he's the expert. I, what's what is the delusion? That's a delusion. Uh, Believing uh, something uh, that's not correct uh, to be true is a delusion. The 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 difference is that the how, how can I say this? Um, the narcissist has a grand idea of himself. He doesn't see himself as small and wanting to be big. He sees himself as big and wanting to be bigger. That's a very different uh, uh, okay, so, dynamic. Uh, okay, so you're saying an oppressed narcissist would be something else. Like a, a guy who feels like he should be big, yes, but is being right. held by, by other factors is not Narcissist. He would not be a narcissist. No, the narcissist. Okay. The narcissist. I, I, see, I see to that point. He is the expert, Your Honor. I see yeah. to that. Okay. The, the narcissist. Interestingly, he's the one who looks in the mirror and thinks he's gorgeous. You're right, and that may be delusional. That's me. I'm. I'm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not, we were dancing around it this whole time. It's me. <laughs> All right. So, got it. Okay. Um, before I get on to the character, of the Joker, could I respond to the point on mental illness? Please, but I haven't even right. mentioned psychosis yet. Oh, please do. Please, please, please do okay. do my work for me. All right. Um, so I totally agree that that once we have um, the, uh, the the reveal that 
uh, so much of what we saw that we thought that I thought was real um, turns out to have not been real and not a figure of figment of his imagination, but something that he truly believed and experienced. That means that he is psychotic. Someone who is psychotic has either visual or auditory hallucinations. And the relationship with this woman would be both. Don't forget, he sees her at the, at the comedy club approving him. He sees mm-hmm. her sitting next to him in the hospital with his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he is seeing her right. and hearing her um, and engaging her in a dialogue. Um, Many, small great objection. Could I just make a small side note? Remember that scene when he's in the hospital with her mm-hmm. and then she's rubbing his back and then she walks away. Right. Remember you can hear the hospital machines and the utter silence. And then suddenly the TV comes on with the Murray Franklin show. I don't And rem- there's I don't Joaquin that. Phoenix. Yep. That's exactly what happens. Rewatch the scene. Yeah. Dead silence beeping on the machine. Suddenly the TV at max volume is there to show Joaquin's Phoenix's clip from the comedy club mm-hmm. and Murray Franklin making fun of him. The filmmakers, they don't need to slap you in the face, but I think they hand it to you right there. That TV's not on. He's hallucinating it just the way he was hallucinating her. He's hallucinating seeing himself on the TV. He's hallucinating going to the Murray Franklin show. Maybe he does shoot Murray Franklin in the head, but he's not a guest. He doesn't talk. Maybe he breaks into the fucking place and shoots the guy in the head. That might be true. But he's not a guest. He was never featured on it and that's a great scene that shows you that little thing hey dead silence they make it so obvious it's silent they give you a whole like three or four seconds of just the respirator beeping and then from dead silence there's murray franklin in the middle of his monologue great moment thank you for bringing it up uh you are making um (laughs) you are making this movie up in your head um, because uh, <laughs> uh, the way my take on that is if it's true and I have to look at it again that, that, that all of a sudden there's a sound that wouldn't have been there to me that's just careless lazy filmmaking just like yeah. the, just just like the, the the that they don't show us um, what happens next from the after he puts himself in the refrigerator um, no they want uh, you to be a that's, smart that, audience that is, that is uh, lazy filmmaking um, I'm sorry it really is there there's so many dots that they're not connecting uh, that you is just connect Dom, you're uh, a thinking order, person order in the court uh, in the interest of cha- time James yes. if you would like to wrap up your I last guess. point oh, okay. <laughs> alright well I, I, I gave you I didn't even mention the fact that the other part of psychosis hallucinations are the sensory part of psychosis delusions are the thinking part of psychosis that's the thought disorder that you that you were alluding to they're disorders of of thinking of um of reason and the classic delusion of course is paranoia which we're not seeing here um uh, though i guess i guess you could say looking at the world and saying it's awful is a version of paranoia but usually paranoia Once the is, cops are following him everywhere and chasing him on the subway they, they are indeed um and uh, i think it I mean, really it's not really happening I, I think it really know. happened. If we're watching an entire movie, none of which really happened, that's not the movie I saw. Uh, anyway, um, the, uh, the we 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 do see evidence of hallucinations. We don't see specific delusions, but but um, because classic delusions might be things like somebody's reading your mind or controlling you, or that there's a special message on the TV or in the internet that's only for you. Um, one of the diagnoses that might fit with that, that be, isn't schizophrenia would be bipolar and manic. There's nothing that looks manic with, with, uh, with Arthur. Um, he, uh, even in his moments of joy, it's a moment of joy. It's not a, it's not a manic high. He never seems to talk fast. He doesn't lose sleep. Um, uh, or, or he's not, he's not, going several days running and not sleeping because he's so busily uh, saving the world. Um, so I would 
find it hard to, to convince myself that he was manic. And he certainly doesn't look severely depressed, except that he is repeatedly um, referring to suicidal. Uh, he, he's showing suicidal behaviors. Um, there is good medicine for psychosis. There's good medicine for bipolar illness and major depression. And there is no good medicine for a personality disorder. So somebody probably did not think he had a personality disorder because he was on seven medicines, um, which didn't make him feel good. By the way, he stopped the medicine, he tells us, after his mother died. Um, so um, you can't point to him stopping the medicine um, as some explanation for why somehow he, he's, his behavior uh, has changed by that time in the movie. Uh, it do they it hospitalize him after he admits to stopping taking his medication? I mean, does well, the social we, oh, worker do well, that, anything? The, 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 uh, that brings me to the very end, and, and I'll, um, I will be quiet because I understand we're short of time. But um, <laughs> I have no understanding of the epilogue of that movie. Um, we seem to see him sitting and talking to the therapist. Um, then we see him walking in the hall and his footprints are bloody. Did he just mm-hmm. kill the therapist? Yeah. Uh, it probably is the case. Um, yep. uh, but when you know, think- uh, small side note, the therapist is a black woman and almost every person, most of the people he comes into confrontation through this film are also black women. The other therapist, Sophie, the woman on the bus who he laughs at. Mm-hmm. And it's not a coincidence. <laughs> Oh, by the way, I didn't even address the uncontrolled laughter. Um, Let me just say very briefly, um, a lot of experts dived in, dove in, dived, dove, whatever, um, in and uh, dove in and (laughs) and came up with pseudobulbar um, illness, which... um, something I had never heard of in my entire medical education. I had to look it up and it does exist, but it doesn't fit at all with his behavior. What I saw every time he, uh, he had uncontrolled laughter was he was angry or he was upset. And, and that is not, and that is not an uncommon response. Uh, I mean, it's a relatively unusual response, but it's not an uncommon response. He would get angry, but not be able to express it. He would be upset and not be able to immediately express it. And the laughter would come. And the the causes of the uh, pseudobulbar that you found? Oh, it's a ter- pseudobulbar is entirely a, a neurologic illness. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not caused by anything mental, and it's commonly mm-hmm. occur in people who have things like MS and and Parkinson's and some other things. Um, Brain injury. Uh, Brain injury, which which they they threw in brain injury, they threw in abu- child abuse. Oh, all this it's not stuff. thrown in, but let me get to my point. Okay, but wait, wait let me just fit, let me just finish, and, and then, then I I, I, I want to hear your point definitely. Um, uh, yes, brain injury is one of them, but what it would be uh, an indicator that he doesn't have this is we do see him able to stop it later in the film. And we also, there are extended periods during the film where he stops the laughter, which I again think is carelessness on the part of the of the, the creative team. Um, they establish this and then they, they don't need to establish it anymore so it doesn't happen. The long speech he makes uh, uh, before he kills Murray, you're going to tell me it's all in his head. I'm going to say it was real. And throughout that speech, he doesn't laugh inappropriately. So if that's the case, it can't be pseudobulbar because you have no control over it whatsoever. Um, but it can be um, something that changes if now you've been able to express your anger. And boy, was he able to express his anger. Anyway, let me hear what you have to say. Uh, all right. Thank you, James. Uh, Mr. Bangs, you may now present any exhibits you have in defense of the movie. Uh, thanks. I'll try to keep it uh, quick myself. So uh, not an expert on mental health, unfortunately, but 
I want to get ahead of this topic a little bit, but you know, this film was made for entertainment. It's not meant to be scrutinized on a dissertation on audio or visual hallucinations. Uh, I think they can use these concepts as inspiration and jumping off points without being beholden to the DSM R5. It's not a documentary. It didn't claim to be educational. It's entitled to as much artistic license as we, the audience will give it. Next. I want to say the issue here with Joker's health issues aren't all mental. We find out clearly early on that Joker's laughing condition, as described on the little cards he hands out, quote, can happen in people with a brain injury or certain neurological conditions, end quote. Later in the film, we find out Arthur was repeatedly abused by his mother's boyfriends. He was found, quote, tied to a radiator in your filthy apartment, malnourished with multiple bruises across his body and severe trauma to his head. Ding, 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 ding. Arthur's problem is physical. He doesn't necessarily need social services. He needs possible surgery on his frontal lobe. He much more likely need, which he keeps hitting over and over in the movie and they keep showing us. And much more likely he needs long-term hospitalization and observation. Now, one thing this film certainly does shine a light on is the system which is supposed to help Arthur or at least identify that he needs help. And based on the fact that he's, as I said earlier, the most lucid at the beginning when he's the presumably the most medicated, it may actually be helping him a bit, even what they are doing. I also think basically this is a movie, I think even the layman can see about a guy who is getting very limited support for his disabilities through social programs. You got to remember, this is a time uh, that came out the Trump administration was still in. Social service programs were being defunded. The Affordable Care Act was being attacked and threatened to be repealed at the time. People did not know where their support systems were going to be. Um, and this can serve as a public reminder. And it did. Uh, I remember mental health and social service went everyone's lips after this film. Um, and for a film in the superhero genre to impart that kind of message in their film, give sick people medicine. I think that elevates this film up a little bit. But what I want to talk about is not, not how is Joker unwell again, if he's lying, if it's a fantasy, if it's a delusion, Ultimately, this film is a commentary on the nature of villainy or evil. What we have here is Arthur, at the end of the day, is a man willing to tell you he wants to hurt people or has hurt people, and he feels justified in it. He feels they deserve it. That's why this picture is important. Here is evil telling you to its face that it doesn't consider itself evil. It's misunderstood. And that's important to know when countering evil. Because sometimes we ask ourselves, how can someone do something like this? Something this heinous? And the answer is... They don't think it's heinous. That's why it's so easy for them to do. So uh, I'm really glad I didn't get, have to get pulled into uh, defending art's right to represent violence today, although I was really ready to. Um, uh, and uh, But one last thing I do want to talk about. Richard Lawson of Vanity Fair found this film was too sympathetic towards, quote, white men who commit heinous crimes. I've heard this kind of thing, that this mm. movie is... It's it it um it sympathizes with the Joker and it promotes incelism. I have right. to ask, what movie did people watch? Arthur is sympathetic for exactly fifteen minutes in this movie. You feel bad when he gets beat up and he has to take care for his mom. But again, as I said earlier, once you realize he's following people and he's bringing guns to hospitals, uh, you know, you know, when we see him fantasizing and playing with it, you know, we know he's not innocent. Arthur is not relatable in this film. 
not to non-homicidal maniacs. He goes around killing and murdering people indiscriminately. He's as sympathetic in this film as Michael Myers is in Halloween. If you already hate fucking teenagers, you'll find a lot to relate to with Michael Myers. But if you watch Arthur and the choices he makes in this film, and you come to the determination he's justified, you're mentally unstable, you know? Um, And... I did want to talk about one last other point. Just want to touch on it. I do want to touch on the point. Does art inspire violence? Because it was important to me in this. Um, And, you know, we have to stop confusing a film's depiction of something as the filmmaker's promotion of something. All right. Frankenstein doesn't promote grave robbing. Batman doesn't promote masked vigilantism. Uh, after Oppenheimer's released, was there a spike in children building doomsday devices in their parents' basements? Huh? Uh, yes, a little bit. Uh, damn it, Timmy. Have you been getting <laughs> in my uranium-235 again? The hell did I tell you? I don't give a damn if you are become death. I am become pissed. Now you better open up this door. All right, I just wanted to do that joke. All right, we can go to closing statements now. <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you. Both sides have rested their cases. The attorneys will now present their closing arguments. James, I, you may begin. I would be very happy to address briefly the violence issue, um, which I do not think is a particular concern of mine about this film. In fact, this Thank film you. is a hell of a lot less violent than than a lot of other vigilante revenge uh, movies out there. Um, uh, uh, they're they're just you know I, I I saw Nobody recently, and which I think is an absolutely brilliant movie, but uh, uh, the, the violence there is amazing. And I saw The Equalizer just last night, with, recommended to me. I know it's an older film. Um, the, the the violence level there is is over the top. In in this film, there's only one really brutal murder, and that's of Randall. Um, and but you were talking about him him uh, kind of randomly uh, killing people. He only kills people who have offended him, um, and or or beat him up. Um, and uh, uh, we don't see him. We don't see him choosing a stranger who he has no relationship with, or no connection with, or no interaction with before, and killing them. Uh, and uh, uh, one I mean, of the Murray, th- <laughs> Murray Franklin. <laughs> well, okay, but Murray. But as he said, Murray, you too are awful, and he was right. Now, whether he deserves to be dead or not is another thing. But he, but but this point, he's. Uh, but but by this point, pulling the trigger is a hell of a lot easier than it was near when he first did the experience when the first time he shot the people, he probably had no idea who was going to murder anybody when he was in the subway. Um, but, uh, and, and also I think one of the things that's interesting about that, that raises a question about, um, or at least makes me think that we're dealing with somebody who has no conscience um, and, 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 and no second thoughts or no remorse is when he kills his mother, um, which he does without any emotion, without any anger and not impulsively. This is something he, he decides to do because, because of what he discovered about her history and the fact that she had lied to him all this time. Um, so um, so uh, whether he's relatable at that point, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say, but uh, I do not see this as a movie that inspires violence in, other, but in others. And the violence that's in the film in many ways is, um, is, uh, is, is kind of backgrounded. I mean, you, you're, it's not in your face. Most of, most of these murders that happen... Um, are you know one 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 shot of the bullet and we move on. Um, it's not, except again for the Randall um, beating. Um, it's not uh, lingered on. Um, so uh, this is a film that you um, that you fantasized about and had your own psychotic hallucinations with um, uh, hallucinations with and made it into your own movie. But it's not the movie I saw. And uh, the movie I saw uh, played fast and loose with the mental illness uh, and, had, and really 
uh, took a, did not take advantage of knowing that this is a movie that was going to be seen widely, that it was thought to be an entertainment, that a film that because of that had an opportunity to to uh, to present to a large audience some some accurate information about how painful it is to be mentally ill and 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 um, and what how it affects the people around you and how limited uh, the resources are the public resources are to help people get the help they need um, this 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 film could have done a much better job about that and that's one of the things that really disappointed me about it but also I felt that it was filled with plot holes that I found found, found annoying and um, and I was not so impressed with uh, with uh, the the uh, soundtrack and the cinematography the way the Oscars were. So we basically saw two different movies. Um, but I, I, I hear what you're saying, and um, and I'm sure glad I didn't see your movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, James. Mr. Bangs, you may present your closing statement. Uh, we saw the same movie. We just we saw it different ways. Your Honor, distinguished members of the jury, I got nothing left to lose. <laughs> nothing can hurt me anymore. This is my fate. My life is nothing but a podcast, and I'm tired of pretending it's not. You know, movies are subjective. Isn't that what they say? All of you, the jury that knows so much. You decide what's good or bad the same way you decide what's guilty or not guilty. Have you seen what it's like out there, jury? Do you ever actually leave the courtroom? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the opposing counsel. Actually, it's exactly the same way in here. You think men like the Honorable Dylan J. Schlender ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves? They don't. They think that we defense attorneys will just sit there and take it like good little boys. That we won't werewolf and go wild. How about another joke, Jerry? What do you get when you cross a refreshing origin story of a popular comic book character with elevated filmmaking and award-winning performances? I'll tell you what you get! You get what you fucking deserve! A not guilty verdict. <laughs> <laughs> no thank wonder you. you saw that movie. Uh, thank you, Mr. Banks. Uh, that was an Oscar-worthy performance. I, 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 I think. We're going to get a podcast award for that. Members of the jury, Mr. Dylan J. Schlender, Mr. Big Ben Hassler, and Mr. There Is No Punchline, Ryan Luis Rodriguez, <laughs> you have all heard the facts concerning this case. It is now up to you to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. The bailiff will escort you to the deliberation room to render your verdict. Right this way, how many times has Thomas Wayne been murdered on screen, do you wonder? Oh man, a bunch, jeez. <laughs> Too many to count. All right, gentlemen. Interesting case. Uh, I think I'll just uh, rattle off a few things first because I don't want to be interrupted. Uh, I don't care for this film. I've made no secret about that in previous recordings. Anytime it comes up, I, I express my displeasure for it. I have struggled with mental illness for my entire life, and this is basically a minstrel show for people like me. It really honestly has nothing to say it pretends that it does, but it really doesn't. And it ultimately boils down to Antifa and incels. That's the same thing, right? Yeah, sure. Why not? And the main thing that I really don't like about this movie, though, is that the Joker doesn't need an origin. He's more interesting the more mysterious and enigmatic that he is. And by going through this, all you're doing is just putting a veneer on it. You're not really changing the paradigm, so to speak. But Ben, I want to hear what you have to say. 
Uh, yeah, this, no secret, I, I did a gentleman's aid on this, although I do see the problems with it. I, I don't like how it sort of tries to have it both ways, sort of the way Gremlins 2 does, with like, oh, maybe it's all made up, who knows, <laughs> we get to do whatever we want. Uh, I kind of think that's sort of a lazy uh, writing technique, and I also kind of agree with the point where it's if, if we're going to say something about the healthcare system and or about mental illness, it seems like you should sort of do it the justice of portraying it accurately. Uh, those are the bigger problems I have with this film. Uh, other than that, I, I, I do find it tremendously entertaining. I think people get it wrong more often than they get it right. Uh, the way that it's the way it's trying to portray uh, the struggles of, of these sorts of people. Uh, Dylan, what did you think? Well, I mean, it was a, it was a tremendous case, you know, as we know, Dr. Charney's a mental health expert. So it was cool, very cool getting that perspective. I thought Maynard comported himself well with those points, though. I mean, we do have to, at some point, we have to say, okay, so where's the entertainment? Where's the commentary? And like you just said, if they want to have it both ways, if we're supposed to view this as a prestige film that actually has something to say, well, is it actually saying something or are we just supposed to retreat to, well, it's just a comic book movie and we're supposed to be entertained by it. I think it tries well, like through the Joker like, narrative, right? Like, well, maybe you know, he's you know, it's so like, any mistakes we made. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's the whole clown nose on clown nose off kind of thing. You know, <laughs> like if you point out a deficiency, you can go, oh, comic book movie. Or you could say, oh, that was a good point. They're like, well, of course it was. It's a prestige picture, you know? So I, I, that immediately, I don't like, the filmmaker is trying to do that. And I think the fact that you could reasonably interpret this as the Joker lying and trying to garner sympathy, it's one of those big kind of film Twitter Reddit kind of theories, but it kind of holds water. And that kind of pisses me off too, because I, I, I agree with the, the good doctor on that one. It's like, that's just not a real fun way to watch the movie. If you watch the movie as the movie's actually happening, it it is more interesting though. So, and I, but those points about how it represents mental health and how we're supposed to respond to it. Cause I think everyone agrees it is trying to elicit some kind of response from the audience. I don't think uh, James or Rob disagreed on that. And so where I'm coming down to is like, is it saying something worthwhile and eliciting a response that's worthwhile? So it's a, it's a little tough for me. All right. Well, I'm going to lock it in. Because I I am steadfast in my beliefs. So I'm going to go guilty. Uh, I don't want to... Dylan, are you going to make it easy Dylan, for me? Dylan, why don't you go? Make it easy for me. Come on, do it. Okay. Do it, do it. This is a... Uh, all right, this, is a, this was a tough one. This was a tough one because... I think, th- I think there are a lot of merits to the movie. I do think Joaquin Phoenix is really really elevated in that. But when we're looking at the the case today and we're, if we're rating that message, like does that, does that get through? Is that good? I think there's a lot of ways we could talk about the movie, but the way we talked about it today, I'm going to vote guilty. Cool. All right. <laughs> so I, with my conscience clear, cause I do think that that message is important. And I do think that a lot of people missed that point. Uh, but I also don't know that that's the film's fault as much as the stupid audience's fault. Uh, so I, I did like uh, the, the case brought by the defense. I think that there is merit there. Of course, Phoenix's performance is, is fantastic. I, I did like the Sophie using her as like the way to kind of show that some of this was in his head. Cause I was actually able to piece that together uh, on the first watch and it kind of enhanced my, my, experience of it um and especially when we get to the end 
I I was quite sure like a lot of it was 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 made up. Um, I I I I would hate that normally in an, in any other film, but DC sort of has this whole Elseworlds thing going on, so it feels like it's sort of allowed, although it bugs me. Uh, I am going to go not guilty. All right, let's go tell that very handsome judge. Well, thank you. <laughs> Mr. Foreman, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. In the case of the People versus Joker, we find the defendant guilty of being a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll fix it in the second one. The verdict is so rendered. Joker will be confined to Arkham Asylum until such time it escapes and runs amok again. Court is adjourned. This is discarded Batman villain Three-Face reporting to you outside the reels of justice. <laughs> James, you won this case. How do you feel? I, I feel good, but I have to say that you brought up... Uh, uh, you brought up a way of thinking about the movie that did not occur to me, and I, I've seen it several times, um, not only for this uh, podcast, but I'm actually going to be uh, using it to teach a class on Wednesday um, in, in, of all places, Arkansas, and here I am in Italy. Um, so, um, uh, but, but, but I was inspired to, uh, to, uh, to use the film as a jumping-off point to talk about some of these issues about um, psychiatric diagnosis. And um, and I think uh, I'm going to be thinking hard about some of uh, of the defense's arguments that 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 so much of this movie might have been through his eyes. I still don't buy it, because I, I I think I, I think uh, it's very clear when we're supposed to be seeing the world through his eyes, and I think it's very clear when we're not. And 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 the times that uh, that we that we are not is most of the film is in my, in my take on it, but. Um, but I can see I, I, it hadn't occurred to me, and it it, it, it was a, it was uh, uh, I don't know it made it it made it the movie seem more interesting, and I and I was kind of glad to hear that, and and, and uh, glad to have the opportunity to rethink it. But I am still very dismayed about um, its portrait of mental illness, um, and, and I do think that they had a certain obligation. Uh, they they can they can come up with anything uh, 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 in terms of what they want to create, but if they're going to be wanting to lean into mental illness as being part of the picture, let's choose a mental illness that makes sense and, and, and that, uh, that we can learn something about um, while being entertained with all the rest of the story. Very interesting. Thank you. And here comes Rob Maynard. You lost. Are the DC fanboys coming after you now? No, because, uh, I mean, I think even as opposing counsel just told you, I, I definitely had the winning there, but there was uh, obviously some prejudice in the jury. I don't think said. film has any responsibility to fucking anything. I don't think it's responsible for being the moral compass for society. If art can only portray events in accordance to the ascribed rules of moral behavior, where we have to punish characters who transgress and ultimately impart to the audience an example for the right way to live our lives. Suddenly that's not art anymore, that's religion. So we can take this whole moral panic about its portrayal of mental health and push it right off the pier. And that's all we have from the courthouse. Let's return to the to the studio for post-trial analysis. I like that three-faced. I yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's a good performance, Ben. That's, good I job. do like that. That was a good one. Yeah, that landed. <laughs> but 
Boo. Anyway, I'm glad you... Anyway, James, rewatch the movie the way I described it. Because I've watched the movie two dozen times. I know this thing inside now. I know every line in this movie. I know every cut. I know every beat. I know every sound cue. All of it's meticulous. The best people in Hollywood were all put on this thing. I'm not saying it's original. We have seen unreliable narrator movies. I've described some. Sure. It's been done before. But, and and I think, yeah, it's all in his head is crappy, but like, it's something the Joker would do. Yes, he he's, he's, <laughs> he's a liar and it's what he would do. I don't want to talk about the movie anymore. I want to talk about you. What keeps you busy? What do you do when you're not doing this? Oh, did you think I did anything when I wasn't doing this? <laughs> I hope so. Hopefully something before, after. You are now the second member of this family to come and yes. beat me, but this time I tried. <laughs> I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell Noah you didn't try last time. <laughs> Absolutely, you better let him know. <laughs> I, I took a big dive. He'll tell me the only reason. Uh, I uh, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Well, I was lucky enough um, uh, to have an author as a son who kind of nudged me for 20 years to sit down and write a book based on the course I had taught at Yale for about 20 years before that. Um, and, it, and it was a course I had invented that I taught to the undergraduates called Madness at the Movies. And um, and I always had thought I'd like to write a book about it. I never did it. Um, and uh, meanwhile, Noah's churning them out. Um, and uh, COVID made it happen, um, or, plus the fact that I, I got a couple of good boots in the rear for my son saying, do it already. Um, and, um, and, and it wound up being the most gratifying thing I've ever done. And the book was published this past January. And I'm very, very pleased with it. Um, and, um, but what, what's also interesting is that um, uh, I, 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 I've always liked writing, but this was concentrated writing and COVID kind of the lockdowns made it so I couldn't really do anything else. I've been retired from practice for quite a long time, but since I retired, um, um, I con continued to consult to schools and I would also teach in the medical school whenever I was in New Haven. Um, so I've kept my hands in and kept busy. Um, and of course I love movies and, and, uh, and it's something that's been a passion of mine for years. So putting it together in a course was something that, that, that um, meant a lot to me. And I, and I taught it for years and, and one of my agendas was always to introduce the Yale undergraduates to films that came out before they were born, because mm -hmm. many, many of them had never seen a black and white film, literally had never seen a black and white film, um, had, had, didn't know some of the, the, the classic uh, filmmakers of, of, of the past. Uh, they, if they knew a name, they maybe knew Hitchcock, but they didn't know Bergman. Um, and, uh, and, um, so I made a point of choosing films that would expose them to it. And um, the, the agenda was always something about mental illness, but also something about the history of film and film appreciation. And uh, it's been it's been a, a joy for me, both in the course and in the book. But when I finished with the book and I, w I was actually at, at the last stages of copy editing and all that stuff. And, and then all of a sudden there wasn't going to be anything to do for six months until it came out. I was I was kind of feeling down in the dumps uh, at loose ends because this had been a project about two and a half years, um, and uh, I asked Noah, "What do you do when you get near the end of the book? Do you ever feel down and and kind of at loose ends?" And he said, "No, I never do because I always start the next one. In fact, uh, I often have already started the next one before I finish the first. So he, he wasn't even giving himself a moment of not having a project in front of him." 
So he recommended and suggested to me, why don't you write another one? I always thought The Madness of the Movies was the only book I would ever write, and I was really glad I wrote it. But um, I I didn't think I had another book in me. But um, Noah said, well, why don't we write a book together? And we did. And so um, uh, the book that we wrote together is called The 12-Hour Film Expert. uh, And it's... Mm -hmm. it's, um, inspired by Noah's book from last fall, which was the 12-hour art expert from his publisher in England, um, which was an introduction to art, kind of like the dummies books, an introduction to something that people know very little about but are interested in, and they're intelligent readers. Um, The dummies books have impressed me with how good they are. Um, People love being called dummies. I guess so. I guess so. Um, like any, anyway, yeah. the 12-hour art, art expert was just an, a one-off that Noah thought to do, and, and it got very, very good reviews, and it's done well. And so he said, well, why don't we do the 12-hour film expert? And the publisher said, hey, this could be the beginning of a series. So, um, uh, so that's been the project for the last year and a half, and we've put in the manuscript and we're about to do copy editing now. And, uh, and so it's probably going to come out next spring. And I, it was an absolute and what's coming joy. down the pike for future 12 hour experts. Well, like. that I don't, well, I'll tell you, no, Noah's already got a contract for the 12 hour writing expert, writing um, expert, oh, final expert, um, wine and, and, expert. Yeah, exactly. It could be that. Um, but um, the, the writing the, the writing expert is interesting because uh, I, I'm big, uh, he may have to change the title because he's not teaching how to write. He's teaching how to get published. Um, and that's Ooh. what the book's going to be about, how to get published once you've written. So 12-hour um, published author. The 12-hour published author. Excellent. Something like that. Something like that. And the, and the 12-hour idea was one each chapter takes an hour to read. And, and it also matches the 12 weeks of a, of a standard uh, college semester. Um, so that was where uh, that yeah, came but from. I read like this. The <laughs> boy <laughs> took so <laughs> I better be an expert by the end of twelve hours. I want my money Fair enough. Now all of a sudden I'm facing now what do I do? Because <laughs> this book is mm-hmm. almost done. So we'll see we'll see where that goes. Um but, uh, next. Yeah, yeah, I gotta start my next. I gotta think about it. We just gave you the ideas. We just gave you them. That boom. Well, the the difference is I actually do know something about film and film history. I know nothing about wine, though I can certainly enjoy it. Um (laughs) um, but that hasn't stopped. You only need to know enough to make a 12-hour expert. So you only need to put in maybe 24 hours. Actually, you, know, you, probably, you probably only need to put in 13 hours for a 12-hour expert. Um, <laughs> I know. Well, I already, told, I already told Noah to be out from watch out for my book, The 11-Hour Film Expert. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's <laughs> undercutting. Right, now, uh, yeah, you could read all the chapters in 55 minutes. Right. Now, uh, we always ask for recommendations from our guests for movies that you think people should see. So what is a movie that you think people should see? What's a movie? You know... Um, and images they move sometimes sound. I, I, oh, yes, very good. <laughs> uh, uh, could it be a uh, could it be a series or does it have to be a sure. movie? Okay. Oh, it can it. be. You won. We'll, we'll let you break the rules. Do you do you know about yeah. the, the series about Attorney Wu, Extraordinary Attorney Wu? Have you seen it? I don't. Um, know. Right. It's an it's a Netflix series. It's on. Um, it's a Korean series. 
Um, and it's a, it's an absolute delight. I'm I'm recommending something that will clear your head and um, and 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 make you feel good about the world. The the conceit is uh, it's fictional, it, uh, and it has a significant arc over the course of something like thirty episodes in one season. Um, they, they they do things differently in Korea, um, and um, it's about the first um, woman with uh, autism who becomes a, a, a licensed lawyer in Korea. And she's a young woman uh, who um, whose father was a lawyer, and she demonstrates her ability to um, to, uh, to to her extraordinary mem- memory by memorizing all his law books by the time she's six, and um, and, and 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 quoting them. Uh, and and the uh, the film is in danger of being a little twee and a little bit too sweet in that, uh, for instance, she's preoccupied as folks with autism can be preoccupied with one particular thing. Um, she's preoccupied with whales and she's constantly um, telling you a lot more about whales than you ever want to know um, in any conversation. And she's flummoxed by things like a revolving door. Um, but um, she is incredibly good as a lawyer because she can remember every single page of the law books and can immediately visualize them and bring them to the fore uh, in, in, in complicated cases. Each episode is one case, but there's an ongoing arc about how people are, treat her in the law office and how the culture treats her. And she has the quality of, a, of an Amelie or a, a young Audrey Hepburn, the actress. She's just absolutely charming and dear. Um, and I recommend it. It's a, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a watch that will, it's addictive. It's um, you, you will watch one episode and you want to watch three. You so, want to binge it. That you want great. You want to binge it. I like it. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey Maynard, you were the opposing. Oh, by the way, was. can I say, can I say one more thing? Watch yes, it in right. Korean with subtitles. There's something eccentric, gotcha. eccentric about the, the rhythms of the Korean language that you want to hear. You don't want to watch it dubbed, which is also. And available. those are the genuine performances. Yeah, so exactly. True with Godzilla movies too, Maynard. Uh, no, because I grew up with the dubs of the Godzilla movie, so that's the nostalgia for me. Now, fun yes. fact, the boy who played young Bruce Wayne in this movie, Dante Pereira Olsen, mm-hmm. also starred in another film with Joaquin Phoenix, and in it, he plays the younger version of Phoenix's character, Joe, and that movie is my recommendation this week. Oh. You Were Never Really Here from 2017. Mm-hmm. Possibly another good choice for you uh, in, in any kind of class, uh, a PTSD stricken mercenary rescues abducted girls and breaks up child sex trafficking rings by bashing people in the head with a fucking hammer. It's awesome. (laughs) You can see Phoenix laying the groundwork for a character like Arthur here. Joe also lives and cares for his elderly mother in New York, suffers from flashbacks and suicidal fantasies, but a gentle soul can be seen lurking timidly just beneath the surface. This is a bit like if Joker hooked up with Taken and then they called up that one scene in Old Boy to finish them both off in the backseat of a Camaro. Right. It's like that. It's exactly like that. Well, you were never really here is currently striming on Amazon Prime. Lenzo, right. you were the judge. What have you got? Well, to dovetail into today's topic of criminal insanity, I'm recommending Manhunter from 1986. Oh, that's directed a good one. By, oh, it's so good. Directed by Michael Mann, it is super a super slick interpretation of Harris's novel Red Dragon. That is right. The first appearance of Hannibal Lecter as portrayed by Brian Cox. The film is shot masterfully. It screams 80s. And the climax with Indigata DeVita is so freaking cool, it has to be seen to be believed. 
The film is replete with style and intrigue. It does not waste your time, and you may even come out of it thinking Cox is the superior Hannibal to Hopkins. I agree. I think, that's, I think, that's, I think that's one of the best. Uh, that's the equal of Silence of the Lambs and maybe better. The, oh, the yeah, question, okay, that's so the question, good. is if we do this head-to-head, do we do Manhunter versus Silence of the Lambs or Manhunter versus Red Dragon? Oh, let's do Silence Manhunter versus Silence Silence of, of the Lambs. Take on the big boy. Because it would crush uh, okay. Red Dragon. Okay, all right, we'll, we'll, put it on, we'll put it on our pile. Big bun, beautiful bun, what have you got? I'm going to go slightly obvious with my recommendation of 1989's Batman, but I'm going to advocate that you see it in a different way because I recently had the opportunity to see it with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra where they play a print of that film that has no score, but the symphony is there and provides that part of it. <laughs> Almost kind of like the silent era where you'd have someone off in the corner like playing the piano uh, while the mm. film plays. Mm. But in this case, they pick films that showcase great movie compositions, which Danny Elfman's score of Batman certainly is. It's one of the best. I can't describe that spine-tingling sense sensation i felt as the orchestra began the atmospheric theme building up to that incredible crescendo i also enjoyed watching the movie in this way because it helped me notice some of the more background pieces in the film uh and and why elfman chose to score like a scene in a certain way not interrupting any dialogue but providing the necessary move or sorry necessary mood i loved it i'll be back i want to see some of my other favorite uh composers like john williams or hans zimmer showcased in this format and whatever <laughs> your favorite movie is with a score that you love uh if you see a facebook uh event advertising it go it's one of the most memorable nights i've had so far this year that sounds interesting are they they're able to actually extract the soundtrack from the film so then it could be played live and yet and not interfere with the dialogue and the other sound effects Right, I think the studio provides them that print without that because they have, you know, they overlay the the score on top. Yeah, that's my question. Is like, how old? You know, can they do King Kong and Godzilla? Mm, that'd be hard, but oh, I'd see it. Cool, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, King Kong when he if they did the big timpani drums as he right, does his steps, like that. Yeah, which I think they did probably back in the day. I'm sure there were live orchestras that play with those, so I'm sure those prints do exist. But you know, a lot like the ones with all the nudity back then. I didn't. I last. can't help but wonder if <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Rodriguez has a recommendation. I was going to say Ryan, why don't you send us on home? My spooky no. recommendation this week. Oh, oh sorry, sorry, sorry. My <laughs> recommendation this hasn't week. been spooky for months because it's I'm November, sorry. right, sorry. James? It's November right oh, now. Oh, of course it's November. Oh, thank you, James. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> okay, so my recommendation this week is actually on topic for once. It's an unforgettable film by John Cassavetes from 1974. It's called A Woman Under the Influence. Absolutely brilliant. It follows a woman, played by one of our greatest living actors, Gina Rollins, who gradually loses her mental faculties, and it takes a toll on her family, including her husband, Cassavetes' repertory player, the phenomenal Peter Falk. It's an intensely intimate film and deeply empathetic towards Rollins' character the actor reaching deep inside to give her an internal life. It'll put your emotions through a stump grinder, but you simply cannot look away, like cinematic rubbernecking, letting life unfold at 24 frames per second. A Woman Under the Influence is currently streaming on the Criterion Channel, what used to be HBO Max, and Canopy, support your local library. Ryan, (laughs) let me just say I totally agree. That's a brilliant movie. I have an entire chapter on it in my book. 
Mm. Oh, I can't wait to read it. Buy that book, too. The 12-hour film. No, not that that one. Madness at the Movies. Madness at the Movies is even better, too. Thank you. Uh, No, Madness (laughs) at the Movie is out since January. The the, uh, 12-hour film expert is not out yet. Will be next year. But when you need a blurb on the back of the book, I know a guy. He is a book blurb expert. He has been, this is true. Thank you. He has been on more jackets than the Coors logo. And with that, we're all out of show for this week, but we want to thank our guest, Dr. James Stroney, for joining us. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed this very much. Oh, we loved having you. We want to have you back too. Maybe we'll put you up against your son one day. We'll see. That would be that would and, be interesting. Uh, I would do that. <laughs> Yeah, we'd love to (laughs) sow discord within family. It makes me feel closer to you. And we hope everyone else will join us as well as the reels of justice keep turning. Count it. It's November. Please follow us on Twitter at Reels of Justice, Instagram Reels of Justice, and Facebook.com slash Reels of Justice.